Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcasts, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining Dan Cook and and me, Pat Ryan, for um, a uh, discussion of The Moral Project of Childhood. Uh, the latest book by uh, Dan Cook. He, Dan is a Distinguished Professor of Childhood uh, Studies at the Department of Childhood Studies at Rutgers University Camden. Um, he's also Department Chair there. You will know him probably through a number of his works. He, uh, in 2020, was the General Editor of uh, the Sage Encyclopedia of Children and Childhood, and this came in four, four volumes. I've heard from Dan and maybe read that it had a million words in it. It's a huge project. Congratulations, Dan. I first came across his work in uh, a 2004 book, The Commodification of Child with Childhood, which was a study of the clothing industry and just fascinating parts of that book about um, managers and, and floor plans and advertising and sizing of children's clothing, things that I didn't know anything about. And I taught that book and learned so much from it. If you haven't read it, that com- comes from Duke University Press, the, the Commodification of Childhood. But we're here to t- today to talk about the moral project of childhood right here and uh, subtitled uh, Motherhood, Material Life, and early children's consumer culture. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Pat. It's really good to see you. We're on a beautiful spring morning in 2020. And maybe the place to start 22, is... 2022. 2022. <laughs> well, the pandemic stole two years from all of us. So. At least. It stole something. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for the correction. Um, so maybe we just start with the backstory of sort of what led you to, to write this book. Well, yeah, and thanks for uh, allowing this. It's always great to have a conversation and to talk. And I, I want to say I appreciate uh, you having you around and knowing that there is, has been a couple of critical, strong readers of something I've done. And that's always itself um, satisfying. So thank you for that, just personally. I, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, really, this is um, a kind of prequel to the previous book. Um, Basically, as I got interested in this idea of the child consumer, which I had always thought of as some kind of figure that wasn't only about buying things and purchasing things, um, that, that it was a particular kind of character persona figure um, subjectivity um, that uh, got built up in many different ways, as you say, in the sort of, I talked about it in these sort of very, very sort of institutional ways in, uh, in the clothing industry. But what kept, you know, over the years, as I did other things with, with children and childhood studies and, and depart, in department and, and did other kinds of studies, um, I kept 
feeling that there was something more fundamental that gives rise to something so that the, this idea of the child consumer could be a possible uh, person or persona, you know, in a, in a, you know, Anglo-Western global North context. Um, that there was something preceding that, of course, as historians, we always know there's something preceding and you have to start somewhere. Um, but I felt that, that it wasn't just um, something that just somehow emerged once there became consumer culture in the, you know, late, 19th, early 20th century, and it and it just wasn't something that just was sort of an an efflux of consumer culture generally, and perhaps you know the just the emergence of the middle class family. Um, I felt there was something um, uh, that was more fundamental as opposed to something that was uh, that was sort of laid on on other things. I guess is the best way I can put it. Thus, it was a moral moral project that had roots in a sort of early modern transformation in yes. modernity. Yeah. Well, that that makes sense because that's well. That leads to uh, the next thing. If yeah. you could, if you for those who haven't read it, or even for those who have, if you could sort of like summarize the main argument of the moral project of childhood, that would be good. Sure. Um, well, I mean, in, in, I mean, in lots of ways, I, 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 it's admittedly a complex book, which you're not supposed to do, but um, uh, in, in the sense that it, it takes a while to get through various arguments. But the basic idea is conceptually what I call the moral project of childhood is the idea that that sort of modern childhood, wherever we want to start that, um, is always already uh, inflected and, and, and um, uh, steeped in uh, some kind of moral understanding. Whichever side of the, the moral world you're on, even the people we might detract from it and not like how they think about childhood studies, it's impossible to discuss or think about or deal with children without having some kind of um, uh, moral inflection, some moral decision, some uh, some moral um, encumbrance upon you, upon them. So that's just that general idea that that uh, that sort of kept coming back to me in whatever kind of childhood studies that that I did. But sort of more to the historical point, um, I, wanting to sort of find these precursors to this sort of you know fully fledged named child consumer of the 1920s and beyond. Um, I wanted to look back into um, <clears throat> essentially religious texts, um, because partly, or, or, or texts that discuss religion, maybe not religious texts themselves, but, um, <clears throat> but essentially the, the idea that, uh, I, I guess I was going against a kind of narrative that I contributed to, frankly, and many people did, was, was that this, this new child, this new parenting sort of emerged, you know, again, in the early 20th century, and we sort of, you know, had sort of gotten rid of the depraved child that was sort of inhabited by Satan, and this new child sort of emerged, and, and there's a kind of triumphalist narrative, and I always was a little sus suspect with it, and having read a lot of different kinds of elements of particularly uh, parenting, and I, and I focus particularly on motherhood and, and, and parenting uh, magazines, um, I began to read on um, uh, and, and think about um, how mothers uh, were being um, uh, instructed, talked to, uh, thought, uh, uh, thought about with regard to their children in, in the early 
uh, 1830s. Um, and that was supposed to only be like one of those intro paragraphs and then I was going to, uh, intro chapters and I was gonna go on and just talk about the child consumer in the 20th century. But as I got into the material and got into some of these parenting magazines and these discourses, I began to find sort of the thing that I thought was there, which was this development of a, a particular kind of subjecthood and subjectivity that wasn't just in the child, but it had to do with the relationality, particularly between mothers and, and children. And so what I do in the book, it, it, I don't know how much of a summary you want, but what I do in the book is I follow this thread of the relationship between what I call childhood malleability, the, you know, as we all know, the increasing sense that children, children could be changed and, and, and molded by education, by experience, uh, and a number of other things, as opposed to, to having certain characteristics uh, set in them. <clears throat> but also how that implicates um, parents, particularly mothers, in, in, in sort of their sort of uh, responsibility and their essentially liability for now this malleable child that can go any which way, who's in charge of which way is the child going to go. And, and that fell unsurprisingly to most people talking, e even from the perspective of today, um, squarely on the shoulders of 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 mothers in many ways in, in these sort of Christian texts in particular, but it moves out of there. And then the last element that I sort of um, grapple with through all these different chapters is sort of this emergence of discussing children's subjecthood. We sometimes call it agency. Agency is one part of it, but this idea that, that children have, a, uh, have or, 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 or express an interiority, uh, something about them that needs to be understood by others in order to guide them uh, correctly. Um, and so those three things kind of weave in and out of them. I, I call it a, a braided dynamic. Mm -hmm. that if, if you think of um, a braid that, that literally that, that keeps weaving in and out, they, they all play off of each other. And so that's the general trajectory of the book. One thing that I thank you for that. And one thing that I, and so I'm, going to um, sort of, I want you to respond to, to the way I, I've read, not just the moral project of childhood, I really read moral project of childhood in light of the commodification of childhood, mm -hmm. and really did think one really heavily influenced probably my reading of the other. So oh. this is where readers can kind of create their own book. And one of the interesting thing is, is how does that sound to the how does that sound to the author? Um, but one of the things that there's a, if I could highlight some things yes. that become, that are there in the commodification of childhood become more explicit in the moral project is the way you challenge historians attempt to locate turning points. Hmm. Right, the way that you play with oppositions in different ways. So one of the uh, challenges if, to, to place it historiographically is that there's a, a challenge in your work, I think, that's developed and become more explicit to Viviana Zelitzer's Pricing the Priceless Child. Maybe not, a, a, and when I say challenge, I don't mean, um, I mean building upon and challenging at the same time. And that that in one way to read Pricing the Priceless Child would be that, that her phrase, the sacralization of childhood, um, 
uh, sets up an opposition between the economy and childhood that wasn't previously there. And I would be interested to see, I would, so one question is how do you respond to that idea? How, how are you thinking about that in light of this research? Mm -hmm. And then, but am I accurate in saying that part of what you want to do in your work is challenge an idea that uh, the trans transition took place from 1870 to 1930, right? And that there was somehow not an intensely moral discourse and practice of childhood beforehand. And that mm -hmm. they didn't just all, all of a sudden become sacralized, but they've always been heavily in, embedded in moral theological questions that ch child parent, child mother relations mm -hmm. previously. And I think you're in really solid ground if you could build on that. So I guess that's two things. I, before I, I don't want to go on and give too many threads at once, but it, am I accurate in terms of how you're trying to prob problematize? transformation in one way that we could read Zelitzer and then and then just more generally how do you want to interact with the arguments of this very famous book about the sacralization of childhood and the construction of an innocent child that's outside the economy but still strangely embedded in it so how do you how does your work interact with that Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's uh, incredibly astute. You are dead on about, about many of the things, and I probably could have even been more explicit about it. Um, I took the, you know, from the first book, I, I stood firmly on Zelizer's, uh dynamics of, of sacralization and uh, priceless child and, and all of those things. And, and in many ways, I, I, I still find it a, a, a profound uh, uh, kind of insight. But Part of what always came out of the commodification of childhood, the, the first book, um, had to do with that if children were outside of the market, became outside the market economy, and we know these to be to be white middle class children, right? Um, um, if that element of childhood, you know, somehow became priceless and moved out of the economy, then how is it that we have a multi-billion dollar global industry of, of goods and clothing? And what's the difference between con consumption and production and, and these other kinds of things? And so I, so I think that's actually was the one of the driving things that made me want to, to go backwards a bit more um, uh, in time. <clears throat> I, what I what I found through just looking through the retracing some of the history and going earlier and looking through these mothers magazines, which were uh, magazines periodicals for for Christian mothers, but also then things like Godey's Ladies Book and and um, Harper's and all of these other sort of big periodicals periodicals that so many people lo have looked at and, and looked at the domestic um, world of, of middle class women in the Victorian period, which, which, you know, I don't recommend to anybody out there because you have to, you have to weave very tightly. Um, you know, it's a very heavily tread upon area, but, but I felt with this problematic that I was having that I was going to see, or I felt I was going to, to see something slightly different. But what I what I found in that to go right right to your questions um, was you know one is is, is that um, these families and and, and these magazines um, were uh, were 
not shying away from the market uh, value uh, and children's interaction with market value in whatever way that it came, whether it be uh, goods, whether it be clothing, it was other things. And, and this is where the, the dynamic of taste comes in. And I write light, uh, a lot about taste and, and how, how taste emerges um, as a sort of middle class um, element of trying to use it as a uh, as a as a prophylaxis against any any bad incursions that that anyone might see, uh, and also as a you know a didactic kind of element. So for many many uh, in sort of a you know white Victorian U.S. Northeast world, you know taste was something that. Um, could be taught by things themselves. I call it the soft pedagogy of things. That that the things that that one surrounds oneself with, one surrounds uh, children with, and young people would, if you surround children with nice things uh, 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 that that you consider nice and and beautiful things and things that are uplifting, um, that would. Um, ultimately sort of guide the character, guide the character of this, this, this malleable thing that's coming into, into your midst. So the, there, we're, there actually are you know, explicit arguments and, and other ways to say, engage children in the material world, engage children in, in, in the things around them, um, how, they, how they build their rooms, what are the things they surround themselves with, um, as well as discussions of money itself, the use of money itself as 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 having sort of didactic properties, mm -hmm. um, pr property itself <laughs> having didactic elements. Um, mm -hmm. You know, learning between mine and thine, as someone put, you know, w w is an element of of training for this sort of bourgeois middle class child. And so what I saw was not this strong opposition, even emerging for a long time between the child and the market. And really, I feel like I located, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when, 1970s and 80s, when people start writing about it and looking back 100 years. I think that sort of strong sense that the market and the, and the, and the sacred child were somehow split is more of a reflection of what scholars and others were writing about, you know, at the latter part of the 20th century than what was going on at least from what I gather, and, and that's open to debate, uh, in the latter part of the 19th. Um, so, <clears throat> so in that way, and just, just to sort of tie that in very quickly, those kinds of narratives in the sort of middle-class bourgeois home um, that we're talking about have incredible resonance with the same sorts of things that were, were where evangelical uh, mothers were being uh, told, trained, uh, and encouraged to to engage their children uh, with the world. So I, um, I find those kinds of things. And just uh, for innocence, I mean, I think this is a thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And obviously there's been a significant discussion of innocence, childhood innocence in the last several years in particular, having to do with um, uh, 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 a black childhood, girl, girlhood interrupted, um, all kinds of uh, wonderful, incredible, uh, discussions about how innocence is is sort of a uh, 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 an in, an imbrication of whiteness, um, and it was, was sort of never been available to all. Um, and, and I and I uh, concur, and I find those very fruitful ar arguments now. But part of the 
part of the narrative that keeps coming back is again, people are relying on the idea that somehow there has been this incredible childhood innocence um, narrative existence reality um, since the uh, since the 1800s. And I honestly didn't see it in, in what people said. They said innocent things, the little innocence, you know, that wasn't like innocent wasn't there, but there wasn't this sense of this sheltered, totally separate being um, that, that, can't or shouldn't be um, exposed to a whole, a whole lot of things. Um, I think that's another thing that gets, gets developed over time. And I think that's another thing that, that retrospectively people who look back on the time uh, um, solidify the boundaries and solidify the, the, the periodization in, in ways that I don't think emerge. And I have to say, from what I read, as much as I respect her, I think, I think in some ways, Robin Bernstein does it in a certain way too. Uh, yeah. Not to take away from the racial innocence aspect of her argument, but she, she wasn't concerned about that kind of timeline as much as uh, obviously um, Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and um, right. uh, the other sorts of things. Well, I mean, one of the things that, that, I, that I get from this is that any kind of simple proposition that we could describe the evil child and the innocent child's dichotomy is explaining what's going on in the relationship between the rise of consumer capitalism and childhood. It becomes very inadequate. Does it actually refer, reflect the, the way oppositions are being used? Not that innocence and evil or uh, corruption aren't part of the discourse, but that that opposition in and of itself is not the prime... Are, is not very helpful for the analysis of the texts that are produced in terms of locating how childhood is being positioned, right? This is, this is why I like to have conversations with you, Pat. <laughs> you no, can put it much, no, seriously, you put, that's it, what you put it much that's more That's how I'm reading what you're arguing yeah, no, throughout, I, throughout your career, and, yeah. and, and I find it very persuasive. Maybe you could speak to, forgive me, because I'm going to draw back on the earlier book, yeah. and you can perhaps apply it to an example from the new one. Yeah. One thing that I think is brilliant, and I think you, you repeat some of this, and I'm trying to remember if this is chapter five or what chapter of the book it is, but um, of the, the new book, but you have this brilliant argument or theme that you develop in a commodification of childhood, and I just really wish everybody would read this and put it in their, you know, quiver of things to look for. And it's, uh, I don't even know if I can pronounce it because it's not, it's not in my vocabulary outside of your work. It's, I think you invented the term period, period, pediocularity. See, how do you say this? Pediocularity. Pediocularity. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, but what's, what's brilliant is you're trying to capture in a word in a single concept something that you find advertisers and commodifiers of childhood doing extremely effectively, and that's trying to see a commercial situation from the point of view of children and youth, yes. and organizing the entire environment, so including down to things like height, but also, also not just the, how the child will see the environment, this is what's really brilliant. Thinking about how the purchasing mother 
will imagine seeing it from the child's point of view. So that a whole new language with sizes and with the organization of space gets created in these emergent department stores that walk people toward purchasing. Now, in order, you can vilify that and say, oh, it's terrible for commodification. But what is important about your argument, correct me and, and, and please shade in the complications, is what's important is that that is tapping into the agency and participatory competencies of children. And if that wasn't taken as an assumption of the commercialized commercializing managers and department managers and magazine writers and others, they couldn't have recommended these techniques. So we have a competent, agentive child very much in the imagination and the discursive practices of a very powerful group of actors a, a hundred years. And I would say with this new book, we're pushing that back further before the new sociology of the child is created in the 19, late 1980s and 90s. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's pretty important. Well, again, again, you nailed it. And, and yes, I did invent that word. Um, I couldn't help it. It just was there. Um, but um, that is probably the the central element that I wanted to go from the first book backwards to because I know it just didn't it just wasn't something invented by market actors for nefarious market actions. Although they it can be, of course, we never we never leave them off the hook. But what is clear, market actors are are are, are never outside the realm of of social actors. Um, in fact, I would go to marketing conferences in the present day, of course, and, and I would go to places where there were brand managers of very big companies and talking up, especially when food was such a big deal. And, and some of these people who were heads of really big divisions of really big places would say, I don't know, my kid likes this stuff too, and I can't stop him. You know, I mean, it's not like they're all powerful. They're part of, uh, of a larger element. Um, <clears throat> what I, what I, what it sort of gets down to is in the moral project of childhood, what I began to see in the early um, texts in the 1830s texts of, of uh, in these Christian uh, mothers magazines was the discussion that the, that the child, you know, the, the idea of the child was increasingly malleable and beginning to be seen as susceptible to influence. You know, the predestination, the evil child was, you know, starting to dissipate. And what was going on is that, is that again, it became incumbent, the, these writers would say, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon you, dear woman, to understand how this being this child of God is seeing the world and how this child of God is seeing you. And so all your actions have to be um, geared toward making this child, you know, ultimately worthy of salvation. Yeah. So how you pray, what you get angry with, how you understand them, how you punish them a little bit later. I have a whole chapter on, 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 on discipline and, and punishment and how that, that transforms. Um, all of those elements was the beginning to 
cite women, particularly mothers, to take the view of the child, to, to engage in pediacularity, um, to, to use that term. And that becomes, in our present day, in, in, in the worlds that we live in and in, in the worlds of imagined childhoods, marketed childhoods, uh, uh, discursive childhoods of, of, of parents, of childhood studies itself, taking the child's um, view and understanding it is a moral imperative for us now. Um, and, and it's been done in many different kinds of ways over time. And that's where I, I want to say that there is a undergirding, a seedbed, uh, an underground stream of this all the way through, which is I don't know when it starts. I don't know how often. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that, but it certainly is present and, 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 and seeming emergent in the 1830s with these evangelical Christian mothers. It, it becomes different with a uh, slightly different when I, when I focus on the kind of less heavily Christianized, although I, I know they were Christian, but more, more, more bourgeois Victorian type people because that has to do with their goods and their taste and, and that has to do with um, the kinds of things you could give them and that clearly has a lot to do with the transformation uh, uh, of the discourse about about punishment the ele the elements in, in in the 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 debates about about uh, physical punishment for children that come out in in the journals in the 1870s to the 1890s are all about how do you see that? How do you think the child is understanding what, what you'd be doing with that? Number one. So, again, what's the child's perspective on corporal punishment? Um, and understanding that you're being surveilled. I, I, there's some line in there I have where, where it's both yeah. the, the child at your bosom, at, at the woman's bosom, and the Almighty are both surveilling the mother <laughs> at, huh. at the same time. So um, it disciplines the mother. Disciplines the mother. It's a heavily yeah. Foucauldian kind of, yeah. kind of sense uh, uh, of what's going on. Um, and then that, that moves, as you could uh, see without perhaps too much, that, that begins to move towards the focus on pleasing children one way or the other, uh, speaking to and giving things in the, to, toward their pleasure. How do we understand what they like? What do they know what they want? Again, that's, that's taking that perspective one way or the other. And you can do it correctly or incorrectly. It doesn't, it, it's not about whether marketers are right or parents are right in it. It's about the um, impetus to have to do that. The, the absolute um, corrupt, corruptness if you don't do that as it as it becomes um all the way to yes once again moving into the elements of the sort of structured consumer culture world where where advertisers write about well how do you write copy how do you know what 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 a, a young boy wants you have to you have to you know get out of your your you know, they're writing to the person's writing to copywriters, to male copywriters and saying, you know, get off your high horse and remember what, what life was when you were in uh, when you were, you know, eight years old and, and think about what a boy would want and how what kind of language he would want in advertising copy. And, you know, so the, there is just a constant refrain in many different registers and in many different sort of contexts and dimensions uh, of seeing seeing the world as the child sees it making that the move you need to make and that has to do with theorizing a, a child's interiority which sort of goes to a, a, a different way that carolyn steedman talked about it i think i right. kind of try to turn it on its side right right and i think that part of 
part of what, you know, as you're drawing in all of these different literatures and complicating sort of how we understand the emergence of modern childhood as it relates to commercial culture, but also there's just so many different threads here that are more, that are emphasized in the moral project of childhood. So the book isn't one thing. In a sense, you broadened it out, or, you know, with certainly broadened out even commodification around notions of taste, drawing on the larger consumer control culture literature, but also questions about rights and discipline and other things. So there's this spreading out. So there's just a lot going on here. But I, I think it gets back to how do we understand change over time? And none of us have a real easy answer, but one lesson out of your book is don't, your, both these books is don't be too quick to think we have a point of transformation. It might be a generative tension that's developed and sustained itself and has different manifestations in different contexts, but a long-term generative tension. So even if you, as I listen to you and I reflect on the chapter about discipline, and the complex, complex nature of a mother's uh, responsibility in, this, in middle class literature for the socialization of children and the complexity of that, that uh, socialization. It's not, this isn't B.F. Skinner. This is a much more complicated notion of, a, of how her, she will appear to the child, you know, and, and, and how that will produce a subjectivity and as you say with things as well right so there's this whole whole really complicated notion of inner subjectivity between mother and child that is critical to the production of modern childhood which is not insulated from consumer culture but it is embedded in it i then think about something that i have worked on actually i'm working on right now is trying to understand the the 2004 ruling of the Canadian Supreme Court, which upheld the exemption that parents and guardians and teachers have to corporally punish children under their care. It upholds mm. it, but it hemmed it in. Mm. It made it really difficult to justify or to use that exemption so that you wouldn't get charged for assault unless you were practicing the discipline much like the way you're describing it. Mm. It's the severity of what the child has done is irrelevant and not a protection. Um, there's all sorts of things like excessive violence in there, but their age becomes important. If they have a disability that impedes with their ability to learn from the discipline, then it can't, it's unprotected. So basically you cannot be using corporal punishment against disabled children, any kind of cognitive disability. And so the court is preserving a sort of parental and teacher right to wow. use corporal punishment in a modest way, but they're justifying it to the degree that it is still perceived and has legitimacy in law as being a behavioral technique that'll change the subjectivity of the child. So the whole ruling is from that point of view. Wow. You know, but here's the thing, that thread didn't start in the late 20th century or even in the 1970s when most school districts in Canada um, prohibited teachers from using corporal punishment. It, the earliest part of that discourse is there's a private member's bill in, in Parliament, in the House of Commons in the late 1660s, that articulates some of these arguments about 
what is really going on in the corporal punishment, in the act of corporal punishment? How does it change how students perceive it? What are the masters really after? You know, and which of those actions are legitimate forms of discipline and which of them should be outlawed? You know, so that that discourse that's trying to pick through that complicated notion of how you create subjectivity is hundreds of years going. And so I would encourage you and I would push harder because I do think the Protestant Reformation and particularly Lutheran's theology, Lutheran theology and, and, and doctrines are incredibly important. Namely, you are saved by grace and grace alone. Uh, authority only comes from the text. Hmm. Um, so you're only saved by your own faith, your own belief, solifies, right? In other words, right. what you think is what saves you. Your subjectivity does, not your act. And, and uh, literacy, or it, the authority comes from the text, not from the church, right? Those yeah. two things impact childhood in incredibly powerful ways. And it's not as simple as two doctrines framing things, but that is a archaeological split yes. in, in Christian theology. Yes. It, it's a split in Christian theology, and to think about, you know, contemporary scholarship um, and, and, and thought is that, you know, the, the normative ideal child that, that, that everybody is rightfully railing against as saying this is a, an exclusively European white child of, of, of the middle class is also right. a Christian child whether they're Christian or not. Um, uh, and, and I think that's, that's been out of most of childhood studies talk, religion, um, and, and not necessarily re- always chapter and verse type religion, but in the ways that you're talking, you were talking about it, yeah. about, about also sort of uh, underlying tensions, underlying presumptions, underlying epistemologies uh, about- right. The way about Weber people. attacked and understood the Reformation. Yes. Not to say that, we have to agree with all of his propositions, right. but he's, he's doing the history of that religion to explain sociological processes, yeah. particularly the rise of the spirit of capitalism. Yes. And in some ways, I read your work as working in that tradition. Yep. You know, I don't know if that's, you would. No, it is. There's a, there's a section on Weber in the early part, for sure. Yeah. I, go, I go right, right to that um, in, in that way. Absolutely. And, and so, <clears throat> I mean, I like the way you use the term generative tensions. I hope I used it somewhere in there. But I think that sort of gets at the core of, of what made me go backwards than forwards. Um, and, and not to ahistoricize a, a, a tension like that, but, but you, sometimes it appears and reappears and reappears in, with all of the different uh, discourses, materialities, uh, social uh, dynamics that that happen at a particular time, um, and and sometimes the same or close to the same tension emerges, um, and and that's the moral, in some ways, the moral project. That that we're still in. We've been in the moral project, and 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 we have been. And part of it has to do with how do you handle children's agency and sub subjecthood or subjectivity, um, along with 
a, a strong belief in malleability because you can't get along these days in many places if you say children are predestined to be something. There's there's a strong belief. There's there's a hope. That in fact, in some ways, people say that's the hope of everything. Um, and and the incredible central entwined position of mothers who are morally and legally responsible. And that and now that we you know may have. Uh, people being forced to be mothers legally right. in our country. Um, it, it takes on a whole different, uh, a whole different hue. Um, not that because there was freedom before everyone had equal access to it, but it's, it's a very different uh, world uh, in those things. And I guess what I wanted to, to do with this, what I wound up doing, I don't think I certainly didn't start off with this, this particular trajectory in mind, but I did, decide to doggedly follow this sort of thread through these things. And I think it, it's, it's criticizable. It's not perfect um, uh, at all, e even close. But I do hope that it is um, uh, provocative in a sense that gets, some, gets people to, to think about um, uh, intertwined dynamics and, and other dynamics I haven't even brought up uh, in this limited few hundred pages. I think we could talk for a long time because as you talk, it generates all these thoughts and, and ideas in my own head, but to, I'm kind of to move to the next stage. If you think, if you reflect back on your journeys, you know, over the, the decades and in the areas that you focused on in children's consumer culture and, and, uh, and children's participation and children's subjectivity and also its relationship to to middle-class motherhood uh, and parenting. What do you see as sort of an opening um, or um, not as simple as this is a, a place someone could, we need to do more work here. It could be just unanswered questions or potential areas that people could interact with that field and not enough has been done or thought about. And this could be at the evidentiary level or the theoretical level or just an area of, of questioning. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple things, I guess, that that's come to mind. Uh, you know, one is totally centered on what I do, right? Um, but, uh, but that's just how it is. Um, that's what you see. Um, I, I think the unfortunate aspect of the things that that I and people like me do is that the term consumer and consumer culture still has a certain kind of baggage that means you know crying children in the aisles or or the emergence of media and then people want to move immediately to children as media makers um, which is a great thing that children do but again it, 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 it it's not quite um, not quite the same uh, uh, that we're uh, talking about. So sometimes it's very unfortunate that that discussing consumption, consumer culture, sort of e either either is the empowered or the exploited child, and and not these larger sets of things. And and partly I wrote this in a sense to say, whatever we call this, I, you know, my argument is that the child that we talk about in childhood studies and in the history of childhood is one cultural DNA marker away from the child consumer. They are almost no, no different if you take things out. It's the same, close to the same kind of being or figure. Um, it's just here it gets implicated in goods and here it gets implicated in perhaps 
uh, labor movements or activism or all the other things that people or want environmentalism to see, want to see the child. The child. So, the, yeah. so the moral project of childhood happens with with scholars because because uh, you know there's still a lot of people who don't want me to talk about this part and how how close and and as you pointed out how, how early on it was marketers and others and before that evangel evangelists who who talked about a very similar model to the ones that we of of the child that that we do and i i have sometimes called this child the darling of childhood studies mm -hmm. and i wrote something about about play and how how play has become how play has taken the place of es essentializing the child people are essentializing what play is and what play does because 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 middle class as people like ourselves want to see our children being creative and positive and not want, wanting to see mm -hmm. them be. So, so that, there's that part. The other part um, that you were saying is, I'm, I don't think social class in, in, in all, of, uh, all of the different ways that it could be discussed and thought about really gets engaged as much as I would like to see it uh, be engaged in all different kinds of childhood studies, not just history, but 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 all different kinds it there, it there tends to be a central centralized presumption of of uh, of a middle class child which then often is encoded white or if it's if it's a working class child then it's it's more like a deficit model or or people don't know how to imagine it and i think it comes from the cultural position of scholars frankly um um just not familiar with these things. So class comes in as kind of, for many, just uh, something off to the side and, and people focus on, on, on race and, and gender in particular or disabilities or, or, or other, other elements of, of children. Mm -hmm. I, think, I, I think a lot of the things that people see and talk about and want to, want to know um, are, are um, products of, 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 you know, this, this, this development of the, uh, of a particular kind of middle class, which has consumption aspects, has cultural aspects, has moral aspects to it. Um, and probably, um, I mean, probably the, you know, I think that has to do, go back to the discussions of, of innocence and, and, you know, when you talked about innocence and we talked about, you know, when did consumer culture start or not start and, and sacred child and, and, and all of those things. I, I think the, those are, 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 are entwined. Yeah. Um, and and the last thing, as I just said, religion. Uh, uh, just I, I I think there's elements of religion. I was just you know having one of my final uh, classes with a grad class, and I sort of brought that up, and you know it was met with a kind of and it's and it's like well I said I know because childhood studies was started <laughs> um, as a field was started by, you know, godless Europeans and, and, and godless um, uh, uh, um, academics in, in, in North America in, in the sense of they didn't want to talk about these things. I don't know what their actual, you know, whether they were godless or not. And um, many of us in this world um, do not strongly perhaps practice or practice in very particular ways, but it's not only about practices. It's about a lot of things that you brought up, uh, uh, Pat. And um, I just, at, at our peril, at our peril, because what's going on in the United States and in other parts of the world is all based in some kind of sense of religious doctrine from abortion rights to right. not, not talking about, not allowing children to, you know, to, 
talk about critical race theory to a whole bunch of other other things. It's all that's how communities are built. <laughs> uh, and one of the strongest ways that communities are built and have been built from time immemorial. Right. And part of the the trick here is to to get people to see that you you have a responsibility to have a competency in an area not as an adherent but as a historian or a historical thinker so that you can uh, engage in proper analysis and that can be in current sociological cultural analysis of evangelical christians in the United States, that you have to have a certain degree of competence to actually talk about those people in any kind of um, informed way. And then I think of the, on the religious element, uh, this is a, uh, a line from Christopher Hill, a famous historian, probably most famous for his studies of the English Revolution, but certainly of 17th century, and, and, and a materialist historian. Let me just mm -hmm. put it in that broad right. sense. But but interested in ideas and interested in class. And uh, later in his life, he's talking to a group of graduate students and they're asking about the 17th century. And he said, and, and century, 17th century English political economy and the English revolution. And he at one point said, okay, the first thing you need to do is read the Bible. And I, that really resonates with me because I believe you have zero chance of understanding <laughs> 17th century English culture in any area <laughs> if you do not know the English Bible. Yes. You just, because it's referenced constantly. You can't read Leviathan. You know, Hobbes' mm -hmm. great work, the first work ever, the first great philosophical work published in English, written in English, unless you are aware of the main source of reference for that work, which is Christian and Hebrew scriptures. And so many people want to understand historically and contemporarily um, um, uh, communities of color, uh, black communities, uh, uh, black people's understandings. And if you don't understand the extent to which various nope. elements of religion and Christianity are thrown throughout everyday life. Um, yeah. It's not about being an adherent or being yeah. an apostle of. It's about reading the text that those people you're interested in read and, and understanding the ritual life of those you're interested in practice. And I couldn't agree more that that it, hist I love this. I can't remember the historian who said this. It could have been, uh, it could have been MJ Maines. She's a former teacher of mine, but I, yes. I may be occluding it because this is decades old. I was really, uh, I don't even know if I was in graduate school yet, but she said, you know, history is not about your experience. <laughs> it's about getting beyond your experience. <laughs> it's about getting beyond what you uh uh what your subjectivity is about right. and and broadening your subjectivity by understanding that of others 
finding out how you're not in the center. <laughs> that's right. And that's yeah. the value of it in the broad sense in that sort of undergraduate education sense. Yeah. Yeah. It may yeah. have more to it on the professional level right. of expertise. Right. Uh, right. But this has been um, a really enjoyable conversation. Last I appreciate question. it. Yes. Yeah, well, last question before I let you go. Yep. And and I don't know if you, this has a quick answer, but I'm not that concerned about time. What's <laughs> okay. up next for you? Like, do you have a project that you want to tell us about or one that you'd like to start? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been, I have to say this, all, this all sort of ended the book and the aforementioned encyclopedia and other things all ended within months of each other just as COVID was taking off. So it was sort of like an exhale that these things ended and then this, this bizarre uh, place. But I, some of the things that are animating my thinking is, is I've been very interested in photography for quite a long time. And so I've been wanting to do things with particularly with photography and well, children, but, but photography uh, generally, um, photography theory, but also pictures. Um, and so I've been looking into a lot of that and doing a, a lot of reading uh, a, along those ways. But I don't have a I don't have a full full blown um, uh, project just yet um, to to say so what it's going to be. Will this change? Are you kind of making at unusual risk of of changing the the media that you're looking at, or 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 not? As you uh, a photographer, are you just trying to include visual culture into some of the same avenues of thought you've been interested in? That's that's interesting. I'm not sure. I think what I want been wanting to do is to think about photography as a, a you know as a medium um, um, in in many different ways and look at histories, of course. And and I have to say, going into kind of an area that I haven't. I've been interested in as a practitioner more than than a scholar, um, but sort of leaving that as like this is what I like to do, and only reading here and there. Uh, and but but getting into the the literature and the research, there's really incredible, interesting things that people have been doing. I was a little worried that things were stuck in 1980s lit crit thinking. Yeah. With which, and it's not. There's there's uh, incredible um, studies of you know with with notions of circulations, which clearly goes into circulations of children, circulations of bodies, circulations of ideas. Um, there's um, significant work. Uh, people are doing incredible things on portraiture uh, that you, you know, if you don't think of portraiture as anything other than portraiture, then you find out, um, of course, that um, once somebody scratches the surface with a, with a sharp mind, like a lot of these people do, you, you, you know, a whole world opens up about who did what, where, what was the technological issues, what were the ideological situations. It's, right. It's really something. I'm kind of thinking about this in terms of my own interest, but I am thinking about your era, the era that you have spent most of your time on. And that is from, it is the era of the camera, the yeah, camera's exactly. invention, the camera's, you know, I think it's the, you know, the gold rush in the late 1840s out West is sort yes. of the first big episode, the civil wars full, yeah. you know, full on and, but all the way to, to Lewis Hine, James Agee, and, right. and and others that that uh, 
contributed to this and those two the last two i mentioned yeah you know, and, and ags they're part of the discourse of childhood yes i don't know if you can even think really clearly about child labor reform in america at least mm -hmm. without thinking about the national child labor committee's use Absolutely. of image absolutely and you're and you're dead on because you know the era of modern childhood as we might say the modern child is is essentially overlapping with the era of photography right right absolutely just the, you know 1839 you know um so it's there's something there that some people do things i mean there's a lot again there's a lot about the innocent child right because you have I know you don't you don't have time, but you know you have you have um, Lewis Carroll uh, mm -hmm. and his pictures and and all of the concerns or, or or the elements of that and and Anne Higgins' work on on uh, pictures of innocence and and these those kinds of images of uh, of children um, that I think set the tone for the contemporary discourse about about childhood innocence in some ways. Yeah, yeah, and there's, um, we've had some things up on shcy.org uh, about visual culture. Uh, um, Lauren Lerner uh, wrote a commentary. Um, it's, not, it's not on a podcast like this will be, but if you go to shcy.org and look up Lauren Lerner, you'll see she put together a really long, visual essay uh, that runs through her career at the end of her oh. career. Well, she's still working, but she's emeritus uh, now. And uh, um, it's a really, uh, the, the images are just striking and they're just drawn out of different articles that mm -hmm. she's written and then describe, she has paragraphs that describe them. So mm -hmm. that's, some people are interested in thinking a little bit more about visual culture and childhood and family and motherhood, those all intersect. She has some, that's a place to start. Huh, excellent. Um, yeah, I think it's well, a real visual feast. And I think well, it's- Well, hopefully the listeners, watchers, uh, you know, to strike something with them or maybe they're working on things too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot out there. Well, Dan, we, I hope we can get together and see each other in person yes. soon. It'll be good. And I, think so. I don't know if you're going to have a chance to get up to Guelph for uh, Shisai's 2023 conference in, in June next okay. year. Okay. I don't know. I'll have but, to look at it. Yeah. Check out, check out that if that's something you can journey to. Uh -huh. And then we'll just have to look for opportunities to, to meet Absolutely. when, when I, we're in the same place because it's been a long time. It has. And I think, you know, all things going well, you know, I think hopefully things are opening up. So I think everybody's going to get a little more comfortable doing things. Let's hope so. I, really again, I, I appreciate all the things you've done outside of this um, with SHCY um, and all the things that you do to keep everything moving um, in interesting ways and in dynamic ways. And, and I also, of course, appreciate you doing this with me, but yeah, you're, you're, you're bigger than this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. It's, uh, it's obviously a privilege to be in this community, to be able to do this kind of work and to be able to spend your days interacting, speaking with, reading, writing, and exploring uh, the questions that we do. So I feel Definitely the is. same 
sense of gratitude toward all the things you've produced and to your program and Rutgers and all your colleagues there. That's uh, been, uh, you know, an important touchstone for many of us that have created uh, programs of our own uh, um, for undergraduates in childhood studies. Excellent. So, take care, Dan. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. SHCY.org.